Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone out there. This is Extra Time AFAWSL Talk Show. This is Keith coming at you again. This is recording on a Tuesday morning in the ATL in Georgia. This is your Chelsea Women Weekly Review. Back with us today is Rob Prattley, CFCW Social Senior Editor, uh, to talk about Chelsea and talk about the last couple of weeks on the pitch primarily and so forth. So, Rob, uh, welcome back. Yeah, thank you for having me. It has been a long, long several weeks, I know, with all a bunch of off the field stuff. And but I really want to focus primarily on how the club, particularly Chelsea women, have kind of responded uh, to everything that has kind of happened. There's no need for me to retread stuff that's already been covered exhaustively and more than exhaustively over the last couple of weeks. But I do want to focus on just like kind of how things have been responded to on the field. And yeah, just to, just to start off, Rob, I you know I do follow you on social media i do follow you on twitter and you put out a uh you put out a tweet sometime over the weekend after both the the chelsea men's team and the boat and the women's team both uh over the weekend uh had gone on to you know to uh victories uh over the weekend uh under the circumstances and and you mentioned uh how proud you felt about the club and how you felt about the team and so forth um, can you elaborate on on that and how and how you feel about how the club and particularly Chelsea women have responded to all of the external noise out there? So, as I've said before, I've lived through numerous periods like this where it's felt like Chelsea against the world, and I believe that Chelsea is unique in the nature of it as a side in that they are so good at having a siege mentality, and I think a lot of that comes from the people at the very top, the leadership in terms of the managers of the two sides, um, in being able to block everything else out and focus on the football and focus on the fact that there are thousands and hundreds and thousands of fans worldwide that are using the football as, at the moment, as relief from mm-hmm. the constant onslaught in the media, which, uh, quite frankly, I, I will go out and say it is farcical in cases this has less become about the Ukraine. I'm yet to see, most of the time when I'm seeing analysis on it, it isn't even starting the discussion about the Ukraine, about Ukraine and what's going on in Ukraine. It should be the priority. It should be the key focus. It should be the figurehead of everything. The priority should be sorting out, A, pursuing peace, B, punishing those that are involved and instigating it, and C, and this is probably the most important this moment, providing safe haven and support for the refugees. Instead and I will not sugarcoat it here, the government seemed to have taken this as an opportunity to cripple Chelsea Football Club from a financial perspective, from a commercial perspective, from an operational perspective. And it is not the people at the top, those in the team and around the team that will be affected. It is the staff further down the food chain. It is the people that work in the bars. It is the people that work in the club shop. It is the people that do the stewarding, do the ticketing, do the day-to-day management, sell the hot dogs, sell the burgers. I've said this numerous times, and I will make no apology for saying it. Do you really think that Vladimir Putin cares that he can't go to Stamford Bridge on a match day, buy a Mason Mount shirt printed from the club shop, go get a pint in Frankie's bar and buy a programme? Or when he goes to King's Meadow, he can't buy a programme? No. You know, this is not affecting anyone. This is not any sort of tough government solution. This is the government using Chelsea Football Club as a straw man, 
effectively, to ignore the fact that there are numerous Russian donors in the talk who connected to the Conservative Party who haven't been sanctioned. There is currently um, a crusade by the government to secure investment from sort of um, Saudi Arabian countries where there have been numerous atrocities of human rights. They are also engaged in a war. It shouldn't be a case that we prioritise one war over the other and say that one is a just war. There is no such thing as a just war. And that's one of the I did a module when I was studying at university called Strategy and War. And one of the main things they said is that any time war happens, the first thing governments will try and do is legitimise it because war is not inherently nice thing. Um, and I'm sorry to get political, but I feel that increasingly this is no longer about the Ukraine. And let me make it clear, I do not have any issue with sanctioning oligarchs. I have absolutely no issue with them being sanctioned and being properly punished. I have absolutely the deepest sympathies and plights in my heart for people of Ukraine. I have Ukrainian friends. I know one particularly Ukrainian very, very well. We communicate quite a bit on Twitter. Um, and he is someone I consider to be a very close friend. I messaged him over the weekend and said, do you feel that you know, the sanctions on Chelsea, on staff being unable to, you know, sell a programme or sell a burger is affecting, you know, Ukraine. And his immediate response was, of course, effing not. It's not, you know, Chelsea Football Club's fault. And this is what I, increasingly is just becoming a case of just witch hunting Chelsea Football Club. And that is what really, really concerns me. And what I will say is that, and again, I tweeted about this over the weekend, Chelsea Football Club, despite what rival fans might like to think, is not the last 20 years of history. It's oh so much more than that. It was founded in a pub in 1905 by a group of like-minded individuals that wanted a football club in the borough of London in the Butcher's Hook pub. It is people like in the 1950s when Chelsea won their first titles. It's Docs Diamonds bringing through a legendary youth group. It's the 1970 FA Cup final, one of the most iconic experiences of all time. It's the 1980s when Chelsea founded their women's side and first looked to embark into women's football. It is the cosmopolitan 1990s when Chelsea had people like Hoddle, Hullet, Viali playing for them. And also, you know, the magician that was Gianfranco Zola. And it disgusts me in a way that there are people that are so blinkered, they can't look past the fact that if Chelsea Football Club, there was, you know, serious outcomes of this, thousands of people would lose their job. And people are so tribalistic in football that they're happy to see thousands of people lose a job. Mm-hmm. And I also say that I am the government, I think at the moment, are abandoning their duty of care to the football club by the sanctions that are on them. Because the football club itself is not a Russian political machine. It is not a piece of Russian propaganda. It is a football club born and bred in the heart of Kensington, on the King's Road. And it is also now a football club that exists in Wimbledon at King's Meadow. There are staff there on a day-to-day basis that are absolutely incredible, fantastic people. There are people there that are long-term Chelsea fans. And I spoke to some at the weekend who said, you know, if we needed to, we we said we'd work for free because we want to just see the club continue playing matches and putting smiles on fans' faces. Fans have already had to face a deluge over the last couple of years with a pandemic, then with the European Super League, and with all of the fallout from that. Stopping fans buying tickets for games, all it is doing is crippling the mental health of so many people. And again, I will stop what I'm saying there because I will start, you know, I will A, get emotional, and B, I will also say something I regret. 
Understood, Rob, and I, I really appreciate the answer to your question um, and and so forth. And I, t I totally understand, and and I won't get into too much of my uh, of my my reaction to the whole thing so far. That could be you can actually everyone listening to this or watching this and actually hear it on actually the Manchester United show uh, that I did yesterday and so forth, where I talked about how I believe that this um, was a classic example of hypocrisy and classic example of governmental overreach uh, with some really ridiculous and horrible consequences for those involved um, and so forth, because it is the um, for me, my under my belief is, and I, again, not to get too political, I'm actually going to be more philosophical about this and say this is that the true role of government is to protect the individual rights of all people, including their property and everything that goes with it and so forth. Uh, I also believe in due process, which has not occurred in this case. This has been classically an, an overreach there. And um, and also because the government has gotten involved in the way they've gotten involved, uh, they've chosen, as you mentioned earlier, to pick and choose, to cherry pick, to come with an agenda and so forth um, and try to mask it or legitimize it under some level of good intent uh, and so forth. So when the government seizes property and seizes things and freezes them for no uh with no due process with no do no not following duty of care not respecting the individual rights of other people involved then that's a classic example of complete and total overreach which makes this makes the entire situation uh horrifically bad and morally uh morally uh questionable at best and that's the best i can put to it um so Unless Rob, you have a comment about what I just said. <laughs> no, no, uh, I, I, I uh, I'm going to Like I've said, I've hashed over this yeah. on numerous times. Again, people who are listening may have heard me have opinions mm -hmm. on this on various other places, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm getting to a point now where it's just wearing me down Understood. mentally and physically. Yeah, yeah. and and I'm I'm sure. Um, uh, and I hear that. Uh, I hear that in your in, in your voice. I hear that in in your tone and so forth. That uh, it has been uh, very exhausting. Um, my next question, though, I, I want to go drill it down to the women's team um, specifically. Um, what are your thoughts about how Emma Hayes is the manager of Chelsea Women? How she's handled everything that has been happening in, externally and internally. Both Emma Hayes and Thomas Tuchel um, and Neil Bath as well have acted with the statesmanship and leadership and integrity um, that has been lacking from government. They have been put in impossible situations. I will also say I will criticise the club for not putting more senior members out there. I want to be hearing from the people on the board, not from the managers. I am not looking for... Thomas Tuchel is not an executive. He is not there to do an executive. He's a football manager. The same with Emma Hayes. She is not an executive. She sits on the board of the trustees, that is completely different. She should not be expected to answer for the socio-administrative requirements of the club. And they've acted with absolute, you know, impeccable integrity and honesty and focused, and most importantly, kept the focus on what matters, which is the football, because the off-the-field issues shouldn't be allowed to derail seasons. Mm -hmm. Understood. 
Um, understood. So let's jump into the the last week. And and, and since we last talked, Rob, um, there have been two league games that Chelsea women have played. Uh, mm-hmm. One was midweek or late last week, and then one was over the weekend. Now we're gonna go. We're gonna be. We're gonna run through them rather quickly for the sake of you know for the the, the sake of time uh, and so forth. But the first match that was uh, you know that happened on a Thursday last Thursday, and we recorded you know before you know a couple of days beforehand, if I remember correctly. My memory is almost gone, but I know that we were recorded before then. The first match was against West uh, was against West Ham. Um, that was um, at at West Ham's venue. Uh, this was a four one win for Chelsea in this match, and this was the the response match from the Conti Cup final that that we were talking about before. Is you know I think we had spoken about you know hoping that Chelsea would make a would respond and react positively to that by you know, playing really up to up up to their level or above uh, coming into this match. Uh, Pernell Harder opens the scoring in the 21st minute. And Charles scores in the 24th. Uh, Pernell Harder scores again in the 32nd. Um, West Ham draws it to 3-1. And then Sam Kerr scores the final goal at uh, the 63rd minute uh, to go 4-1. Rob, what going back to Thursday? I don't know if your memory can go back that far, knowing how, how tired you are um, and yeah. so forth. But what are, what were your thoughts about that game? Was this the reaction that you were hoping for from the disappointment of the final? Um, yes, I think it was. Again, like I said on Thursday, with the nature of what happened on the day, I said this, you know, beforehand on a live stream that all I expected was eleven players to turn up and play for the club. And that was all I was going to ask of the players, 11 players to turn up and give their all for the badge. Um, Obviously we discussed that West Ham was a tough opponent and they're not an easy place to go. And I think in all honesty, in general, Chelsea handled the challenge very well. They maybe took a little bit of time to get going, but once they got the first goal, they went ahead and did the very classic thing of got the, you know, the other goals. And then when West Ham threatened to come back into it, Chelsea went up the other end and stamped out, you know, any sort of resistance, and then it sort of, you know, ebbed and didn't really ebb and flow. It just sort of petered out for the final sort of thirty minutes of the game. Yeah, uh, certainly was. And one of the things I wanted to know, wanted to ask about about this game is, is did was there any sort of uh, you know formational shift? Because I know that Emma Hayes has been fl- switching back and forth from a three-four-three to a four-three-three tactically and so forth. And given, and I think part of that's due to personnel that were available. And I think there were a number of players that were not available for this for this particular match still. Um, so what kind of formation? Because I'm seeing it was a three-four-three. I'm seeing some places a four-four-two. We don't even know. So what 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 are your thoughts? What did she go back to a three-four-three or was this still a four? Uh, uh, four three three or something else. Honestly, it was very difficult to tell. Um, I think yeah. a lot of the time it was more the three four three in the situation. Although at times it did drop back into the sort of four at the back. I think the benefit of the players that Chelsea had on the pitch meant they could use both systems at the same time. Certainly, um, certainly about that. And then the other question I have also was, you know, in the starting lineup and also um, this was also an effect for this weekend's match, but Musovic in for uh, AKB. Um, what do you know about that? Is it was what how that decision making? I mean, was there an injury or a knock or something or what? what is from what, from you know what I understand, that? it was just rotation. OK. All right. So this was not a, a issue or, or of. 
form or performance. From what I understand, it was just rotation. But I don't think it was. I don't think it was particularly performed sort of base thing. Emma has rotated the goalkeepers sort of throughout the season. Um, And again, like I said, I thought Musovic might have played in the uh, cup final. She obviously didn't. Um, So it didn't really necessarily surprise me to see uh, her coming in for the game against West Ham. Um, And is there a timeline on Fran Kirby's return? Um, I think uh, think the last discussion on it, Emma said she wasn't going to make um, the game this week, but she was hopeful she'd be back for the FA Cup game. All right, cool, cool. Um, of course, uh, you know, and so anytime that Kirby is not there, it kind of becomes more, uh, you know, it seems to kind of then focus on Harder and Sam Kerr being, you know, together. Um, but what I noticed also is that, um, you know, Beth England got a start in this West Ham game and she was playing really very, very forward. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it was interesting. Certainly, I think they used Beth England against West Ham because um, obviously she scored against them earlier in the uh, sort of, uh, in February, actually, I think it was when we last played West Ham. Um, and obviously, she's sort of more of the traditional centre forward, I suppose, is the description that I would use. I think that she is someone who, um, again, is very unlucky, as I said before, because she has the unenviable task of probably sitting behind one of the best front lines in sort of, you know, in Europe when you have Harder, Kirby and Kerr. And then also you've got Gura Wright and, and Jesse Fleming able to sort of come in who are not, you know, it's hardly sort of enviable um, sort of choices. But I will say, I think England, the thing she does add is she always does put that shift in and you always know you're going to get that 100% work rate out of her regardless of how a game is going or what is happening. And I think that did benefit Chelsea quite a lot in this game. In what way? I think just the fact it took attention away from Penelope Harbour. And it also meant that Sam Kerr had more space as well. Yeah, that makes sense. makes sense. And I saw how that was, you know, how that could um, certainly play out. And then we had um, in the midfield for this, I like this this interesting combination of starting with Sophie Engel and G, uh, you know, in the midfield um, and so forth. How do you feel like that played out? Um, I, I was less keen on the Ingle G midfield at the weekend um, in the cup final because right. I think it's a struggle against teams that are perhaps more front foot and do put a front foot press on. I do think at times G does slow down the play um, sort of quite a lot due to the nature of the player that she is. But I will say that in this case, I think this was the sort of game that was, was perfect for her because it allowed her sort of to play at her own pace and dictate the tempo rather than having it set for her. And because West Ham weren't ever going to be playing sort of a strong pressing game, gave you plenty of time on the ball to decide what she was doing with it. One of the things that I've heard through the, you know, and through multiple grapevines, and I'm wondering what your thoughts on this kind of in general, but that, you know, I've heard a lot of noise around that really Chelsea's difficulty in on offense from time to time. And now, of course, this game, you know, when Chelsea scores four goals, is, you can't say that there's a problem on the offense. But I've heard from time, you know, from time to time, and I heard it a little bit more vocally over the last week in terms of that the weak, the, really the weak part is the is there are times where there is a lack of fluidity and chemistry in the midfield coming up to the front three. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Or is that what you've been your perception? Um, certainly it's... I think valid to a point. However, I would also say that um, it is less. I think 
less about sort of the fluidity overall, more about the fact that because over the season, Chelsea have had so many injuries and so many issues to deal with, they've been unable to sort of, you know, keep and sustain continuous partnerships. They've constantly had to chop and change. Mm. And so that certainly has made things difficult as far as the chemistry standpoint. Um, yeah. And so forth. So exactly. makes sense. Now you mentioned that, uh, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier, Rob, that, that you felt like it took Chelsea a little bit of time to kind of get going. Uh, you know, however, they, they got with before the first goal went in, they had had three, four, five, six, seven, eight. They had like nine shots, but most of them, only three of them had been saved yeah. um, and so forth. Uh, but a lot of them were like from like far distance, you yeah. know, from like 30 yards out. G, you know, from 30, she did another one from 21 yards out named Charles from 28. Uh, yeah. Sophie Engel from 31 and so forth. I mean, it's, when I watch Chelsea and when they're doing things like that, that frustrates me a little bit because I'm like, why? I mean, like, I'm like, why are you doing that? You could, you know, it's like, you know, I'm not sure what the purpose is, you know, behind that, um, you know, just, you know, taking shots from such a long range um, and so forth. And, well, and maybe end, it was the reaction to West Ham trying to be resolute, but your thoughts? On the one hand, I'm inclined to agree. On the other hand, I would uh-huh. say, like, you know, is the, the age old, if you don't buy a ticket, you don't win the raffle. Um, true. That's true. Sort of, Situation and Chelsea do have the players who, from a technical quality and standpoint, do have the ability to score from that range. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't think it's you know completely fair to sort of to make those sort of comments. I suppose um, I, I will say I think at times it was also an element of early on in the game, perhaps an element of frustration of getting things out of the getting things out almost, um, and obviously having to deal with difficult sort of political a political day for the club off the pitch, it sort of, you know, takes a little bit of time to get going, really. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I had that sense. Um, I had that sense, and I, I've always spoken, when I've spoken about Chelsea, is is that they really like to start off really strong in the first, you know, 20 minutes. And if the, if the opponent makes it through the first 20 minutes, then things kind of, you know, you go through the first initial wave, um, and then, you know, things kind of, you could possibly settle down and, and, you know, West Ham made it through the first 20 minutes, but didn't make it through the first 21 without, mm-hmm. without conceding uh, and so forth. So obviously Pernell Harder scores, you know, two goals in the, in the, you know, in the first half and, you know, obviously, you know, obviously a, a solid, very solid performance and what I would, you know, what I would have been hoping and expecting from her, but um, who were some players that, that really you felt like outside of the, the known, you know, the, known ones everyone points to what who, what play other players kind of stood out for you as as spark plugs in this particular match i think you know the obvious one to say is definitely harder but i do think that um neem charles i thought had a really good game mm-hmm. um again i think she's been very impressive in the last sort of couple of uh, games actually and i think her energy really adds quite a lot to it obviously she scored a very impressive goal um from a you know, long-range strike, but her more her general all-round play and her ability to be dynamic is something I think Chelsea really um, benefit from. Because as soon as you've got a player being dynamic from fullback and pulling players out of position, you know, going marauding forward or doing it from wing back, it causes problems for the opposition. Because if they've got a secure shape, it then starts disrupting that shape too. 
Right. And that's what you really try to do on offense is really try to disrupt the shape. And, and you know, as as has been said, you know, not moving the ball, but is moving the opponents uh, out of position and then creating for their space. And Chelsea is excellent doing that, um, you know, because there are multiple times in this leading in the pretty much most of the times that I remember seeing from the, the goal goals that were created and even the good shots that were created that did not turn into goals was there was just so much space to work with because somebody yeah. had create moved into a position where it drew uh, one of West Ham's players. And, and that's what happens a lot of times with, with teams that try to be very organized and very resolute on defense. It's very tiring to do that. Uh, yeah. And you sometimes lose patience in the process, um, you know, as time kind of goes on and you get it gets kind of tiring um, and because you want the ball. I mean, I, even if you play a really solid, you know, for, you know, old school Italian defensive format, you still want the ball. Yeah. Um, and so it gets tiring chasing people around. And I I'd imagine it's incredibly t- tiring trying to t- track and mark, you know, um, Sam Kerr and Fran Kirby and ev- all the weapons that Chelsea comes at you with. And, and so I'll I saw a lot of times and as time moves on this gaps get a little bit wider and the space gets a little bit more and then and then you just kind of take advantage of that um you know i think it's also i think it's also worth noting that because these are players from positions where necessarily you aren't expecting them to come sort of flying their forward from and so then that causes problems because for example if you're the left back and you're marking up against the right winger that's fine but then when you've got the right winger cutting inside because the right back's going on the outside, suddenly you've then got to call a centre-back across. And once you call a centre-back across, that makes room for the central striker. And so the other centre-back has to come across. And then on the other side of the pitch, your other winger has complete, you know, the right back has to then drop in. They drop in and suddenly the other wing back can get forward. And effectively, you go from having a front three to having a front five. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And when that happens, you got overloads, um, you know, you got overloads in the wrong places when you're the, when you're the defensive side and then you, then you're left with an unenviable change, you know, um, situation where, okay, well, who do I, who do we then go after? Because if whoever we go after, that's going to create, uh, that's going to create somebody open somewhere, potentially in enough space to do some damage. Right. And so that's what Chelsea does great. And, And to that point, um, you know, one of the things I always look at, as you probably know, is that all of you probably well know, is that I look at shots created. I look at how many shot created actions that it's that a player has or the whole team has. You know, yeah. and in this particular match against West Ham, they had 20. There were 20 shot creating actions and so forth. But what I love about what Chelsea does is that those 20 shot creating actions were spread out over, you know, pretty much everybody. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and not just like one or two players that then, you know, the way, it, you know, other teams kind of have you, you can always then look at the stats and see there's one player or two players that had like dominate the shot creating actions. But with Chelsea in this match, there were three players that had four each. You had Joanna Anderson, Pernell Harder, and Nem Charles had four shot creating actions each. And then he had a couple more who had two. Sam Kerr had two, and then Millie Bright had two. And then he had four other players. You had one each. And so it was like, again, with Chelsea, Chelsea is like from all over the place, from all over the pitch. That's where the creation comes from. And it's just, that's agonizing and tiring for a defense. And that's kind of what I saw, um, you know, um, in this particular match. So um, that was one of the, the statistical things that I liked looking at with, with Chelsea. And you see it all the time with them, their ability to do that. Um, some other stats in this match, I mean, they had Chelsea had the most possession. Their um, passing accuracy 
you know, that's something that people like to beat them beat with a stick about their passing accuracy because of how forward they are. Their packing passing accuracy isn't going to be solid, but their passing accuracy was 71%, um, you know, for the match, but that's compared to 63 for West Ham. You know, of course they had uh, shot more shots on goal, you know, more shots period. Um, and they won aerial duels. They were, they won 26 out of 39. You know, that's pretty significant. Obviously, they had more touches um, moving forward. Um, other, part, you know, individual stats that are, you know, worth noting. I mentioned the shot creating actions um, in terms of key passes. John Anderson had four to lead the team uh, in key passes. And then looking at more defensively, um, you know, Nim Charles, you mentioned that she had a really good game. She had 11 tackles plus interceptions. Um yeah with a match to lead the team act really solid by far led the team. Um, and she also led the team in successful pressures um, with the ball. So, you know, really good stuff, um, you know, and sometimes we don't pay much pay enough attention to, to defenders that really do well. Um, and so far we, I think probably pay too much attention to defenders when they make mistakes <laughs> when they, instead of, um, you know, instead of actually, you know, doing a lot of the stuff that they do um, yeah. and so forth. So, I mean, uh, you know, would you pick Brunel Harder as a woman of the match in this one or, or, or are you picking like someone like Nim Charles? I think it's difficult. I think Penilla Harder was very good in this game. Again, as I tweeted at the time, I'm not sure what Paul West Ham did before Penilla Harder arrived in the WSL to make her hate them. Um, but I uh, I do think that, you know, she was very good. I thought Nim Charles had a very good game. Um, to be honest, I also, I, I thought G was very, very good in this game um, because I think the game sort of suited her. I think she was able to control possession very well. Obviously got an incredible assist for Harder's second goal. Um, in general, I just think it was a really well, well-rounded, polished performance, particularly in the first half. And then in the second half, okay, West Ham did start well, and I think the early goal did benefit them um, in a way. But Chelsea hung on; they did make. I think Musovic made a couple of good saves to keep the score at you know one, and then suddenly Chelsea went up the other end, got that sort of half chance. And again, you can't afford to give Sam Clare a half chance like that because she will take it. And then suddenly the game is sort of out of your hands completely. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of that's basically what you know what ended up happening at the very end, and so forth. So let's move on to to Sunday. Um, Sunday is going to be probably known for several uh, iconic photographs or videos. <laughs> um, you know, um, that happened at the very very end of this that I think are going to probably be remembered until the end of time, probably, um, and so forth. Um, uh, just pictures that made me like, wow, okay. <laughs> This is how much this meant um, in, in going in terms of just responding because the, the situation without getting in back into it, the situation externally from the club between Thursday and Sunday changed, had gotten a little bit more problematic and more much, much more concerning um, mm-hmm. and so forth. So, so Chelsea then plays Aston Villa um, and that game ends up, you know, in a one nil, but what is, you know, the thing of it is, was the one was way into, was in stoppage time. Sam Kerr uh, probably getting also milestone goal, 50th goal, um, you know, um, it was like 50th goal for club and league. Um, was that for like overall though? Is that 50 overall? That, that's Chelsea a 50th there? goal overall for Chelsea. All, overall. Okay. Um, and I think she's had like 71 
goal. Uh, so 71 contributions in total, yeah. 20, yeah. 21 assists. It could technically be 72, although one assist is contested. Ah, okay. All right. Uh, but still, this, the numbers speak for themselves, right? I mean, yeah. they really do for, for Sam Kerr. I mean, just incredible numbers in the, and even the amount of time uh, that she, you know, uh, that she spent, um, you know, because um, she hasn't been, um, how many games, is that 71 goal contributions and how many games do you, 60, you I say 69 games. Yeah, that's incredible numbers. Mm. That's that's really just incredible numbers. It's incredible. Uh, and you also, you also factor in that out of those, if you look at those uh, 12, the first 12 of those games, there was only four goals and one assist. So if you then factor out those out of the equation, it becomes something like 57 games and I think, what, 46 goals and 20 assists, which is absolute nonsense numbers. What were your what were your feelings about, you know, with everything happening, what were your feelings about going into this game with Aston Villa? Um, <laughs> in, in a way, it was kind of relief mm, because yeah. football is designed to be a relief and it's designed to be yeah. like one where you can just sort of switch off. On the other hand, Aston Villa are a very tough side to play. They've got an incredibly good manager in Carl Award. Um, they also have an incredibly good goalkeeper in Hannah Hampton. And they were always going to be dogged and resilient. And I think they were like that earlier in the year when Chelsea played them away in the league. Um, again, I think it was a 1-0. I think it was Jesse Fleming that day got the goal. Um, but it was always going to be, I think, a dogged, difficult game for Chelsea. And I don't think Villa, you know, came with intentions to attack. I think they came with intentions to play on the counter-attack to get a point and possibly sneak more. And that's completely in their right and remit to do it. And it was up to Chelsea to break them down. And eventually, you know, by hook or by crook, they did get there. And I think the nature of the celebration at the end shows you what a big goal it was, not just in the context of the league season, but also in the context of the football club. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Yeah. And we'll get to that, um, you know, we can get to that, those moments at the, you know, as we move, move along a little bit here and so forth. So was this one of those, you know, because in the previous match against West Ham, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Chelsea scored four on an XG of 2.2 or, or, or maybe 1.7, I think actually, uh, yeah. and so forth, which is solid. And this one was the reverse, but w- it, as I review the highlights back of this match, um, again, again, I watched so many games and I couldn't get really blurried about stuff and so forth. Was this a product of, because Chelsea had like an incredible number of shots, um, you know, overall, they had 23 shots, nine shots on target um, overall. Um, There, I saw so many moments where Hannah Hampton, you know, made crazy saves and so forth. But then I looked at it again and I was like, you know, some of those saves were not really good quality shots. So what were, what was your opinion? Was this more about, you know, Hannah Hapton really just, you know, doing really well at goal or, or were some of these chances not all that strong? I think it's a mix. Um, yeah. I think there were some that were, you know, phenomenal stops. Uh, certainly the stop to deny Wrighton after Sam Kerr's initial efforts parried was a phenomenal stop because Wrighton did, although Wrighton should have gone in the opposite corner, I think she tried to do the basis that the keeper would get back up and dive across goal and sort of put it back across them. In the end, Hampton read that one well. Um, I think there was one other save that I remember being particularly good. I think it was low down to her right um, when she did deny them. And there was also one from Sam Kerr that was a 
impressive save. But I do think it was a. I think in an element it was poor sort of taking a chances. Certainly in the first half, I think Chelsea looked a bit flat. I think it showed that perhaps things you know off the pitch had caught up with them. Um, Aston Villa were again clearly very fresh. They'd had time to you know mm-hmm. have a. They'd had some poor recent results, but they clearly had time to have a rest to recuperate and to sort of be ready to sort of kick on not having had the, you know, extra game in the week, whereas Chelsea had had that. And I think, you know, they were clear, it became pretty clear that they were setting up a stall to try and counter-attack. And in the first half, I think it worked quite well. I think they did provide the flat. But after half-time, I think critically, and as time went on, I think they critically started to drop back and drop back and drop back. And it made it increasingly hard because then when they were clearing it, there wasn't really an out ball. It was just going straight to the same players um, and sort of being recycled. And ultimately, that's what led to the goal was the ball, you know, just being punted away and not being cleared well. Um, mm-hmm. Possession not being managed well. But at the same time, I find it hard to say that they could have done anything more, for instance, because it's not as if they, you know... No, Aston Villa fan, I think, could come away from that game and say, you know, the players didn't do enough. Sort of, you know, the tactics were wrong. We didn't do enough. They were just ultimately, at the end, I think, done in by a combination of sheer bloody-mindedness and also that little bit of... The little bit, no, the little bit of luck you need in situations like that, and the sort of luck that is what makes champions, and the sort of grit and determination that makes champions too. Yeah, and this is, I mean, and and I think you hit the nail right on the head right there, um, because this is the type of situation, this is the type of game where champions win games like this. You know, teams that win leagues and win turn cups. Uh, competitions, you know, have games like this, and it's not the the big game that they won like six to one or some crazy score line that really defines it. It's games like this that define it under extreme levels of, of, of fatigue, mentally, physically, and adversity, uh, facing a situation where you could easily. You could people. I think people could have understood potentially dropping points uh, or, or having this game as a draw. And Aston Villa, you know, played. I, you're right. I, I totally agree with you. It's not that Aston Villa failed in this match, and in, in in the sense of their tactics were wrong, as you said, or their personnel was wrong. They they played as well as they probably could have expected. Um, they had their moments, um, and they had their moments where they didn't play as well. But overall, they, it's not like they didn't get the tactics right. It's not. That they had a, not had a good plan. Um, they played. They had a plan. They executed that plan. And then they executed it pretty darn well. It was Chelsea that, and you look at the numbers, particularly in the second half. The first half was really flat. Um, you know, in terms of you know, I think it was just sort of like, you know, let's get to get the first round done and 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 move on. Because really, when you look at the first half, there were a, a you know a grand total of seven shots by both teams um, in that. Uh, in the first half, but then I don't know what happened at halftime. I don't know who said what in halftime, but it was a storm fest um, um, from, you know, 45 minutes on uh, and Aston Villa, you know, it, it tried to be as resolute as possible. But as I mentioned earlier, it gets yeah. tiring and they were under an absolute onslaught. Um, you know, and it just like, and under onslaught like that, what you, you probably mentally start unconsciously going backwards, which is what looked like what happened. Yeah, no, exactly that. And I think it's a, I think to a point it's always going to happen, especially when you are tired and you're up against, you know, top players. There's the, 
the thing people always talk to me and I talk to players about this, there's the physical tiredness, but there's also the mental tiredness of having to try and keep predicting and working out what they're doing. And that sometimes can be even harder because right. when you're up against top players that literally just need an inch, you're trying to not give them that at all. And that requires an immense level of concentration. And again, as someone sort of said to me, when it was it was that one split second when that concentration slipped that led to the goal and led to right. Chelsea scoring. Um and it's all right if you have that for 89 minutes, but if it lapses for one minute, then suddenly, you know, you concede and you go from taking a very credible point to taking no points at all. Exactly. And, um, but as I said, you know, champions, you know, that's what champions do. Um, champions do that. Um, and, um, you know, they come out, they get the three points, even when, um, you know, even when it looks difficult and so forth. And they just kept fighting and fighting and fighting until the very end um, and so forth. So Musevich, I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, Musevich, you know, going into that goal, I mean, she, you know, takes the, takes a long ball and basically says, okay, well, let me get into this. Let me get an assist <laughs> uh, and so forth. And kicks the ball long into the, into the box. But how much, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, it must have been like an incredible relief, release everything when that goal went in. What was your advantage? Yeah, it was, yeah. I uh, I can only apologize to the people at Kings Meadow um, because I think I broke one of the seats um, in the level of celebration that I had. I can only apologize to my friend Jess in the Chelsea Social who was next to me. You probably have been deafened by me bellowing. Um, it was a level of celebration I haven't seen at Kings Meadow for a long, long time. And I think it was a combination of A, the relief of the title race, mm-hmm. but B, the wider relief of the club, because you inevitably knew that the headlines were already being written and the stories were already being done of the saying that, you know, this was, is it playing on Chelsea's mind? Is there issues off the pitch? What's going to happen to Chelsea women? You know, what's going to happen? You knew that these stories were already written. And every single one of them had to get shelved because they had to change the narrative from plucky Aston Villa take a point against beleaguered battered Chelsea to Chelsea find a way by hook or by crook to get that win. And, you know, Sam Kerr's celebration, obviously, you know, I must have been aware of the recent law in a few days. Or at last week on social media, to police what you do can and can't do as a, ce- a celebration. How stupid of me! Um, but it, you know, I think it reflected the level of relief around the club to have that ability to celebrate something, and for that split moment to not think about all the nonsense that's been going on off the field and just live in the moment. And you saw that by Emma Hayes's reaction as well. Emma Hayes is usually quite restrained, but. You know, seeing her steaming up the touchline to go and celebrate wildly with the whole squad, and the fact the whole squad did get involved, it it was something quite special. Yeah, um, and with that being said, um, I'm trying to hold on here, trying to pull up something real quick. So, um, so on the screen. And I probably need to zoom this a little bit, maybe. And so this is from Aaron Cuthbert's oh, yes. Twitter. This is like the iconic photo of it all. Explain this. What well, is this? That, well, it's actually, I, I, What's I going on? 
I actually, I understand it's actually a rendition of a abstract version of Romeo and Juliet, and Emma Hayes playing <laughs> Romeo is actually uh, is attempting to stab Tybalt, Sam Kerr, with Aaron Cuthbert as Banquo holding them back. Um, by my understanding, right. no, I mean it was just it typifies the absolute chaos. I mean, Emma said that what she wanted to do was try and get in there to talk to us to tell them to refocus because she felt they'd, you know, <laughs> gone too far. Um, ah, yeah, okay. But okay. I also, again, it reminds me a little bit of um, people, people may remember this one, of Jose Mourinho when Chelsea played Paris Saint-Germain in the Men's Champions League in 2014. Um, and Chelsea got a very late goal through Denver Bar and everyone went and piled over at the corner flag and Mourinho went over and joined them. And he, at the time, he then announced he was giving instructions to Barr afterwards that from, you know, the kickoff, you will go and play left back for the final couple right, of minutes. Right. And it was very telling that just before Emma went and did that, the first thing she did was she turned to Also Abdelina, who was sitting there completely not ready to come on, clearly didn't expect to be coming mm-hmm. on, and immediately right. told her to get stripped off so that it right. was ready in order to make that substitute as soon as the next break was and extend it a little bit. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just... a sort of absolute chaos, sort of really, but the best kind of chaos, the kind of chaos that yes. reminds you why you love being a football fan and why it's such a difficult sport. And at the same time, I want to, you know, I want to say it's that, that level of chaos. On one hand, when there's always a winner, you have to remember there's a loser. And the Aston Villa fans that were there on the day did make, you know, did do a credit to their team. They were behind their fans. And Hannah Hampton, again, she just slumped, after the goal, it just slumped on her back. Because again, yeah. you could tell she'd done no more. You could tell... Any of them had done no more. As soon as the ball bounced, it's quite telling because um, the ball bounces and Remy Allen, the captain, she sees Sam Kerr in there and you immediately see her response is she starts, you know, getting quite frustrated with herself because she knew as soon as that ball bounced, it was a danger and it was a threat. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, far too often you see the keeper just punt it long and it goes all the way through to the other goalkeeper. But when you have situations like that where it bounces, it causes so much indecision and sort of confusion and it just leaves you know you right for that split moment and that one time where you can you know get things right and you can have that sort of very specific sort of you know that very specific bounce that you need or that little bit of luck that you need just to have the ball fall your way yeah and that's one of the great things about uh, football or soccer um is you know, having that heightened level of extreme tension and dragging that out and building and building and building up until the very, very end. And, and I, I really, and I, I really empathize with the, with what you said earlier is you probably in your head thinking about all the stories that are going to be written and all the, the consternation and all this stuff going on and, and everything else happening. And it instantaneously changes in a moment. Um, and then mm-hmm. just the ultimate chaotic release and relief that comes from that at the end was just like um, incredible. And so I, when I saw that picture, well, I saw the video of Emma Hayes just running down the, the touchline, you know, to join in and, and so forth. And, and then uh, just, you know, utter chaos at that point. And the stands were going insane from what I could see. So you broke in, I don't know, you might get a bill or something, uh, yeah. from, you know, from there, which I probably you'll gladly pay. Um um, and so forth. I mean, that's what, you know, that, that is what football really is all about. This in moments yeah. like that, you know, um, and so forth. And, 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 and that's what, you know, why soccer, football, whichever word you want to put on it is, is so in a sense, 
you know, in so many ways important. And you mentioned about mental health earlier. You mentioned about the, the mental health of people involved and being involved in football, loving it, um, being a part of it, um, you know, and so forth. And this is the type of thing that this is why, it, you know, and so forth. It is such an escape. And then yeah. you mentioned earlier when you talked about the beginning, you know, thinking about this match that, you know, it was like, okay, now we can focus on football. We can focus on a game. We can focus on a match. You know, let me put my energy into this because yeah. other, other, you know, what in the background is just exhausting, icky, ugly, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, and, you know, and then that kind of come out like this, you know, great stuff, great stuff. So real quick, I mean, cause I'm up near up against the clock here. So what is coming up for Chelsea on the pitch? So there's Everton this week in the league and then Birmingham in the FA cup at the weekend at home. So thoughts going into Everton um, and, you know, another league game, this is the, like a, like a run of fixture after fixture. And given what we just said, I wonder if that actually might somewhat be a good thing to have all these opportunities to, to have matches. But again, you know, this is a tiring run uh, under the circumstances. So your thoughts about Everton coming up uh, oh. a team that's been very disappointing and yeah. then Birmingham, another team that, that sadly has been also quite disappointing in the cup. Yeah. I think Everton Everton's one of those things that will be, I think, quite important for Chelsea to get an early goal. I think if they can get an early goal, it might end up a bit like the West Ham game. If not, it'll be more like the Aston Villa game. Um, Everton have obviously been quite erratic. They were quite offensive at the weekend in terms of play against Leicester, but I'm not necessarily sure they'll try and play like that against Chelsea. I think if they do, they will be carved apart on the counter-attack. Um, with Birmingham, I suppose it's more of a distraction in the way, I think, for them. Um, potentially from the relegation battle, but also could be used as, you know, a motivating factor of obviously that bonus you can get to sort of start planning for next season and, you know, have a good barometer of where you're up against. But I think Chelsea, that late winner will have done a lot, like, you know, physically, you're a lot less tired and a lot less mentally tired and a lot less physically tired when you get a 90th minute winner than when you concede in the 90th minute. And that will have, you know, that will factor in. And I think Chelsea... You know, it was important this was the first time they ever won without either Harder or Fran Kirby since Penelope Harder has joined the club. Um, they obviously won without in recent weeks, like Magda Eriksson being around, who now appears to be sort of getting back to full fitness. And also, Aaron Cuthbert and Jesse Fleming returned um, mm-hmm. in the midfield, which was, I think, very important for the forthcoming, um, for the forthcoming weeks. Yeah, certainly. And, and um, you know, it comes fast and, and thick, but... <laughs> If I look at Chelsea's schedule really quickly, though, hold on, real quick, but um, yeah, these are these two matches are really good opportunities, um, you know, coming up. But um, but have you know not Pat when you get past um, you know Birmingham, then then there's there's an interesting game coming up with Tottenham. Yeah. Um, around the corner in, in eight days time on the 23rd, you know, at home at Kings Meadow. I think, is that right? Yeah. Um, against Tottenham. And that's that to me. I'm, and they play Tottenham twice, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, you know, and you know, against, of course, the one, the second match is in, is in April uh, as the season's closing. But we're in the thick of it right now, Rob. I mean, it's like it's coming down. You yeah. know, the way that, you know, the table looks, I mean, Arsenal do have the points on the board. 
Um, you know, but Chelsea is is trying to, you know, catch up as far as the number of games. So they still have the games in hand. Um, I, of course, I would love to I would want to have the points on the board because I, that's rest assured. You can't take them away yeah. um, and so forth. So it's going to be interesting. But I, I'm circling this Tottenham match on the 23rd. I think they'll get by Everton and I think they'll get by Birmingham City. Um, Everton, I don't know what to expect from them, but I, I expect Chelsea to get through. I expect it to to potentially end early. Um, and, um, Birmingham again, I mean, Birmingham, you know, also sometimes you don't know what to expect from them because sometimes they sneak up on you and, and do kind of interesting things like they yeah. do with Arsenal. Um, so the thing that is one, and one of the last one I, I want to make in closing also is, is, you know, is I think that, you know, people that I've heard Chelsea fans have all, you know, clutching pearls and things like that about how the team has performed. But I think what they forget and I think it's important to point out is the fact that the competition is stronger. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, Everton is not an easy match and it never really is. Tottenham is not going to be easy, you know, and they got Reading coming up, you know, that's not going to be, there's no easy matches. And then Tottenham again, you know, and then having Manchester United, who could be well, looking at I, potential top three right I at the end say. of the season. You know. what, what I will say will be interesting is in these forthcoming games is that Chelsea, I think this time, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's crap, have the first chance they had all season to go to the top of the table. Um, if they win their games against Everton and win the game against Tottenham, by the time Arsenal next play, because Chelsea play ahead of them on that corresponding weekend, Chelsea will be top of the table. Now, all year we've seen Arsenal leading it and they haven't had the pressure of having to pick up points and sort of chase from behind. They've had the luxury of being able to drop points. If Chelsea get them in a point where they're suddenly behind them, and also vice versa, if Chelsea drop points unexpectedly, it'll be really interesting to see how they respond. Um, because that's something we haven't seen so far. Yeah, and on the screen for those of you watching, you know, that's what this is what the table looks like um, right now. I mean, you know, our, Chelsea have the two games in hand. Uh, you know, um, they're only five points back. Um, you know, on the table, but yeah, that that opportunity is coming, and and um, you know, our Arsenal is like looking over their shoulder. You know, and they're gonna that's gonna be kind of pressure filled for them as well, but. Um, you know, so this is a, you know, there is, even though there's five points difference, there is that race because those two point, there's two games in hand there um, in play. But yeah, exactly right. Um, you know, exactly right. And um, don't know if goal differential will play into this as well. Um, that's that's interesting with that. Look at Chelsea. I mean, Chelsea's given up the least amount of goals, you know, in the league, you know, so far with that seven. Um, but that's how it looks. Strong, you know, you got that race for third. Um you know, I, I still don't believe in this Manchester United squad, um, you know, and I don't think Tottenham has enough offensive weapons and so forth. So, um, you know, so I, I'm looking at the Again, I think that's your top three, but, you know, and we, I don't want to talk about necessarily City too much, but that's what I see in, the, in, in that um, and so forth. So, Rob, thank you again so much. Um, I know you've probably been doing a lot of given the work that you do, you've been, been talking a lot and I, and I can tell, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time 
uh, to, yeah. to join me today uh, and and to go over this. Um, yeah, no problem. So, forth, so thank you. So thank you very much for watching. Please remember to smash a like and please subscribe uh, to this if you're listening on all the podcast platforms that are possible in the world, which I think there's 167 of them from my last count. Uh, please give a five-star review uh, on that. That really helps us out a lot. Uh, we have changed our name. We have not changed our format um, and so forth. So we're going to keep on trucking and doing what we do. So, But thank you so much for listening. Uh, and so forth. And thank you for watching. Take care of each other out there, please. Uh, coming up, hopefully later, we're going to um, we'll be talking with Kate, talk about Manchester City. And later on in the week, we'll talk to uh, talk to um, Josh, not Rob again. We'll talk to you next week, Rob. Um, we'll talk to Josh again about Arsenal. And they got that. Uh, they're looking at uh, Champions League stuff happening with them, too. Interesting tie with Wolfsburg. Uh, coming up. So thank you so much. Take care of each other out there and take care of yourselves. And we are going